Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Emily Lamb. Emily, would you mind giving a 60-second introduction to who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. My name is Emily Lamb, and I am an account executive. I've been working in the profession for about five years now, and I've worked across about five different roles. So have a lot of experience with different industries from fintech to transportation to advertising, and now currently in sales and customer support technology. Excellent. So, uh, Emily, the, the reason that you and I are speaking today is because we're both involved in a couple of Slack groups. We started chatting on there, and I'm particularly interested in the reality of what it's like being at the sharp end early in your career, because fusty old dinosaurs like me, I think, often forget what it's really like being uh, at the start of your career and the kind of pressures that you're under, uh, but also the deficiencies in management. And I I know that you and I both have fairly strong views about this. So tell me this, as a young sales exec, what's it genuinely like going through the recruitment process when you're speaking to potential employers? What kind of experience do you have there? I think the recruitment process needs an overhaul. Uh, The reason I say that is as a person looking for a job, you're expected to, you know, do hours of research on a company, actually, you know, create projects and really learn about the company. But I feel like the reciprocal isn't the case. Typically, when recruiters come in, they don't really know anything about my background. I typically see them looking at my resume and fingering through it and saying like, oh, yeah, you worked here. Uh, what kind of company is that? And it seems like they have almost no knowledge about me when I spend hours preparing, which I don't think is the right balance because typically with companies that I do want to work for, I expect them to be putting the same amount of work in to understand who I am and what value I can bring to them as I'm seeing how good the company is. That's very fair. Uh, What about the employers themselves? Um, How responsive are they? I I mean, it's hit or miss. Obviously, there are some employers that do a great job and are responsive, but I think it's very common to have a recruiter or someone say they'll get back to you Wednesday night, and then you're sitting by your phone Wednesday night because obviously there's a lot of anxiety on the job searching front, and you're hoping that you'll get a response, and do I text them? Am I allowed to? Am I bothering them? And then, you know, Thursday rolls around and Friday rolls around and you're sending follow-up emails and they're like, oh, we'll get back to you, which I mean, obviously I know internally they're evaluating multiple candidates. They need to have that. But I think giving a fair timeline to the person actually interviewing is really important because people are in a lot of stress when they're having this, whereas the recruiters are just saying, who's the best fit out of these four or five candidates? So to pick up on that, I'm on the other side. So I've seen so many employers mess this up. And I need to tell you up front, this is damaging your brand. This is ruining your reputation as a prospective employer. Uh, So Emily, tell me this. Did you tell your friends how badly you'd been treated by specific companies? Absolutely. I think... When I'm applying for jobs, I probably have four or five people in my immediate network that I'm 
speaking with every day, like, hey, these are the jobs I'm applying for. What kind of advice do you have? And then, you know, if I come off, hey, I'm I'm really frustrated. I haven't heard back from this employee. One thing that really gets me is once you get rejected, when you ask for feedback, how did I do? What did I say? What could I do better? It's just radio silence. And I think those are the ones that really sting. Okay, so a couple of things here. There is a rule called the 3555 rule. If you do a good job, they'll tell three people. If you do a bad job, they'll tell five people who in turn will tell 55 people each. If you are not getting back to your candidates and not treating them with respect, if you're not giving them feedback, then you're going to end up with probably 150 to 200 people being told how shit your brand is. So don't let recruiters damage your brand. And as an employer, don't damage your brand by treating candidates with disrespect. They put a lot of time, effort, and work in. You owe them a duty of care and responsibility to give them feedback. At least give them a decision. Don't keep them hanging. Because you know what it's like when you're the other end of a purchase order and you're waiting for a decision. Can you imagine what's going through their minds when it's their livelihood instead of just a transaction? So wake up. You've got to treat people with respect. And the recruitment process, having recruiters who are underqualified massively, who knows the square root of bugger all about the candidate and know next to nothing really about the company. And all they're trying to do is get their candidate's CV date stamped before someone else's. That is not the way to recruit. All you're doing is turning the recruitment process, which incidentally, if you haven't worked this out, is the manager's number one job. Managers have five functions. I'm extending it to five. Hire the best people. Okay, recruitment is your number one objective. And if you're not recruiting every day and interviewing every day, then you don't build a bench, which means that when you do need to recruit, you have to recruit reactively and take anyone with a pulse. Number two, get the best out of them. That means onboard them, pre-onboard them, onboard them, train them, coach them, hold them accountable, make sure there's clarity in terms of expectation setting and consequences and rewards. Number three, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. That doesn't mean inundate them with a pile of technology. I'm talking to one prospect at the moment. They're probably spending $5 million a year on MarTech and sales tech, and they're so far behind. They're at least 60% behind quota in spite of the fact that they've got all this technology because they haven't given them the resources they need. They're just putting technology between them and the customer thinking that being efficient is being effective. It's not. The fourth thing that managers should be doing is helping clear the roadblocks and protect their salespeople from acts of stupidity and sabotage from above. And the fifth thing is make sure that you are managing inclusively. Make sure people have a voice. Make sure that you're respecting everybody within the team. And uh, you've got to make sure that you do those five things well and consistently. So Emily, let's look at the onboarding process. You don't have to name names, but if you want to shame the the, the guilty, feel free. But Mm -hmm. in your experience of the five jobs or so that you've had in the last five years, tell me something. How effectively were you onboarded? I think there's there's a range of experience. So I worked at a larger company, which is your typical boiler room, thousand person office, multiple floors. And they actually had a a really good onboarding process with a 60-day university of company training, which was 
very fantastic and very thorough. One thing that was kind of a caveat is you actually didn't get commission until you were able to break out of like six months of expectation. So one thing that I think that company did a bad job is they basically come it came in the first day. I was like an entry level SMBAE and they let's focus on your future. You can be a manager, you could be an enterprise rep, you could be this, you could be that. All you need to do is just put in the work. You'll probably make 40K this year, but you can make 100K next year. And basically just trying to sell a dream instead of actually selling me to actually be successful in my own role. One thing that hurt was I spent the whole time, how can I get to this benchmark? How can I get to this benchmark? And I didn't have any focus on how can I actually succeed in my current role because that wasn't really the expectation set to me. And my current role, you know, it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't sexy. It was making a a wage where I could barely afford to live in San Francisco and was eating frozen burritos out of the freezer because that was my only option. Okay. So again, looking at the onboarding process, experience has taught me in the last 35 years, there's a lot of scar tissue. Experience has taught me that you need to have a 120-day onboarding process. Why 120 days? Because in that first four months, the employee is putting you, your company, your management style on probation. They're deciding, is the manager an ass? Uh, Is this the job I was sold? Can I do the job? Do I like the people I'm working with? Do I like the products, the services, the customers? Was I better off somewhere else? And it's your responsibility to set them up to succeed. Now, If you're going to set them up to succeed, the onboarding should start in the pre-onboarding stage. Make sure that you're equipping SDRs and AEs with the right kind of tools and material so that they can learn their craft before they start. Help them ramp up to to target quicker. If they're working their notice period or they're on gardening leave, make sure that they've got access to call recordings so that they can hear what a great call sounds like, what a bad call sounds like. Help them to understand the talk tracks and the pain points, identify the messaging, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that by the time they arrive, they're already hitting the ground running. And in that 120 day plan, you need to make sure that they understand what they need to know by when they need to know it, where they can find that information, how it is going to be measured, what good and bad looks like, what standard they're going to be held to and what the red flags are. And you need to make sure that you start out with absolute clarity about what is expected. Because if a new hire fails to meet your ambiguous expectations and then you blame them or fire them, that's on you. That's shame on you. So, Emily, tell me this. In that initial training that you receive, how much of that is actually teaching you how to sell versus teaching you about the product? I would say like the the particular training I was speaking to did have a pretty big focus on selling because it was targeted towards hiring people straight out of college. So I worked for like a financial services company and we basically, how it would go is, you know, we realized we got a solar customer from inbound that was really great. So then like everyone started reaching out to solar companies And then all of a sudden we have an e-commerce company that's really good. And then we started reaching out to e-commerce companies and uh, it took a while to like figure out who actually needs this product. And I think it was a lot of guesswork and stuff, which really could have been conducted more prematurely by 
interviewing our current customers and saying, are these challenges you have, like, are these unique to you or are they more broad across your organization? And where can we actually bring value to you and to maybe your industry counterparts? Tell me something in terms of the collateral that marketing does produce, where you're meant to be using that in order to help you as a sales aid. How effective has that been? I would say the most effective marketing collateral has really been like reactive where I suggest, hey, like I have a, a one pager or a website page related to X and then it's created otherwise. However, I don't think I've really worked with like a, a sophisticated marketing team in any of the roles that I've been in. Okay, fair enough. Tell me this then. What about in terms of capturing customer stories and making the customer the hero? In whichever role, whether it's this one or previous ones, how often were you being fed those kind of stories so that you actually were able to relate with, you know, from one customer to another, the journey that those people go through? I think, you know, customer stories are really defining moment in my sales process when I talk to people because they want to hear about the specific challenges that other people have had and they've overcome. And honestly, for me, I think it's the best way I could really learn about the product because we could have, you know, feature X and um, item Y. But if I can't really tell that story, that's something that is a huge loss for me. Okay. So again, I, I cannot begin to stress this enough. We all buy off customer reviews, user generated content, customer stories, customer advocacy. Uh, what we don't do is we do not buy off marketing-generated clover that's poured out about the product, making the product or the company the hero. No one cares. They genuinely do not care one way or the other about where your company is headquartered. They don't care who your investors are. What they care about is, do you understand my problem? Can you help me solve it? And the challenge here, as always, is making sure that you make the, your customer the heroes of your story. Because like Emily said, the moment you have those stories, people can relate. For the last quarter of a million years, our ancestors have been sat around campfires telling stories about the great emu in the sky, about Zeus and Hephaestus, and about you know, Odin and Thor. Um, and we, we forget just how important it is to be human in our sales and our marketing. So tell me this, you're past your probation period. What's your experience then in terms of what happens to quotas and targets and uh, the kind of pressure young salespeople are put under in terms of um, hitting the quarterly target or the monthly target rather than playing the long game? Yeah, I think uh, one thing that you know always consistently happens at companies I work with is me and my team have a great quota. You know, I've, I've had a successful career. We blow out quota. And then next quarter, we sit in a meeting and it's quota has gone up. And, you know, I understand the business needs need to change and that's totally reasonable, but my salary is not changing. My workload's not changing. The amount of leads that are fed to me isn't changing. It's just that the company realizes they've paid the salespeople a lot and then they want to kind of account for the revenue and get it back. 
which I don't think is a great approach. I think, you know, if quotas are going to go up, there needs to be rewards and incentives that are put in place. Like, hey, you guys hit this target. That's great. You're going to get X amount of pay bump because you're now responsible for a Y quota. And that's really a good way to provide balance and, you know, say, hey, you did a great job. We want more from you. We're going to give you more and have that fair, like give and take. Okay. So tell me this, in terms of the turnover rate within young sales teams, what's the life expectancy of a new hire? My friends will joke around. If you stay at a company for more than two years, you're a dinosaur in the sales side. So again, you've had how many sales roles since you entered the profession? I had five. So they've ranged from six months to a year and eight months. Right. Okay. So that's over five years. Five or six, probably about six. Now, you've been successful, you've been hitting your quotas, but you're turning over and you're seeing all this turnover around you. What kind of message is that sending you? Once you're a successful sales rep, one thing that starts to light up in my eyes, of course, recruiters will reach out to me, but you know, people will offer larger salaries, better packages, new training, new experiences, which is all great. And you know, people say... If you stay at a company for a long time, you can build loyalty and build a brand. But all of these companies are promising us. You know, I work in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. There's a new startup every 20 minutes, probably. So there's a lot of opportunity in the market. And I think if I'm not getting rewarded for really surpassing my role, it almost feels like opportunity cost to actually stay at my role unless I'm really having like a ramp to success and growth. So again, making the point here, you need to reward people who are successful. You've got to help them to succeed. But equally, as you look around and you're seeing this massive turnover of uh, sales reps, that sends out a terrible message to your customers. In the past where you've worked at companies where there's been a high turnover of sales, what kind of relationship Or what kind of reputation did the company have with the customers? I think, uh, you know, in that boiler room I spoke about earlier, one thing that was basically commonplace was every 90 days, everyone received a new territory. So whether or not there was turnover, you were getting new people. But there was just a lot of frustration from past customers. Because when you get a new territory or a new region... First strategy is to reach out to past customers or customers that didn't sign up or customers that engaged at one point and maybe didn't commit because they're obviously the most familiar with the products and are the warmest leads. And those customers were nasty. I hate your product. Your people call me all the time. Like they sound inexperienced. They sound junior. They don't care about how Joe, the ice cream shop owner in Delaware is doing and they're just sitting in San Francisco trying to succeed in their new job. So again, you need to recognize that you're damaging your brand, not only by churning and burning your salespeople, but also because your salespeople never have any time to establish a good working partnership with your customers. In this day and age, if you are not developing lifelong customers, 
And uh, this speaks to another significant problem, which is, I, th- I believe, fueled by the way founders are driven ludicrously to raise funding. In a couple of weeks, I'm delighted to speak to a serial founder who's founded six or seven businesses, and they're all self-funded. And as a result of that, they're not being driven to the quarterly reporting cycle. And as a result, they can focus on developing partnerships with their customers instead of just hitting the transactional target in order to make quota. And net result of that is that they can actually pay attention to what the customers want. Emily, tell me this. Have you ever been in a situation where you were told at the end of the month or the end of the the quarter, get anything and everything you can in, no matter what, uh, do anything you can to bring in that revenue? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in reality, that's just kind of the expectation of salespeople. It's discount at the end of the month, bring it in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes there's a real reason why a customer isn't going to sign up right away. Let's say like they want to go through a full trial or they want to implement product one before they implement product two. And, you know, we try to push and stuff, but I think there are a lot more opportunities to be thoughtful. There's opportunity to get more revenue if you're not, you know, pushing to a deadline. So I I mean, it's a give and take. I think, you know, it's one of the best levers to have in your pocket as a salesperson to say, hey, you know, if you can sign up by August 31st, we'll give you 20% off. And then it has like that satisfaction and the finality. But I would rather be using that as a sales tactic than as something to actually, I have to do it. Otherwise, my manager is going to be in my ear saying, you know, you need to do this. You need to do that. I want this revenue right now for my target. I want to have like the decision of whether that's the best decision for me and my cycle. Okay. Do you mind if I pick you up on four things? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. First thing, if you discount, you just told your prospect you lied about your price. And if you get caught in a lie, you can never be trusted again. They may forgive you, but they'll never forget. Well, um, it's not sec- a lie. It's an uh, okay. Well, hear me. <laughs> Second thing, if you're trying to push a customer to make a decision at a time that suits you, but doesn't suit them, then in effect, what you're doing is you are selling selfishly. And the customer who is not ready to buy will say, no, go away. I'm not ready to buy. But when you come back and they are ready to buy, now they expect that 20% discount and you've just given away 20% of pure profit. So that's dangerous. The next thing, if you educate your customers and your prospects to wait till the end of the sales period, knowing that they will always get a discount, you create a rod for your own back because they will delay the decision until the point where they can squeeze you because they're treating you like the commodity you've behaved as. Second thing is that if they all buy at the end of a quarter, then all of a sudden your professional services team or your engineers or your implementers are now going to be facing a massive uh, overload in terms of their workload. So the question that you then have to ask people is this. Look, Emily, I get it. And I know that you're used to waiting till the end of the quarter to see if you can get a better deal. But tell me something. If you're 11th in the queue, who do you reckon is going to be working on your project? It's always going to be the people who are left on the bench. It's not the best people. It's the ones who are left over. So that can be used as a massively powerful piece of leverage to get them to buy before the end of the quarter at premium 
in order to get the best people working on their implementation. Okay. Now, the, the final piece, the final piece is this. If you are a company that is consistently pushing discounts at the end of a sales period, you educate and condition your salespeople to believe it's about the money. It is never about the money in a real selling situation. Never. If you have managed to uncover the value and uncover the real pain, and the pain is sufficient, they will find the money from somewhere. Unfortunately, bad managers and bad leaders and private equity and venture capital push this fiction. And as a result, you're constantly stealing from the pipeline from the next quarter or the next sales period in order to make up the deficit in this quarter. And the net result of that is that you're always under stress. Tell me something. How often did you see or have you seen salespeople burn out? I don't think I've seen a salesperson that hasn't burnt out. Okay. In five years, you're seeing people burn out constantly. We, we hear in our profession constantly this talk about well-being and managing stress. You don't need to manage stress if you stop performing acts of cretinism on your salespeople by forcing them into bad behaviors. If, on the other hand, you focused your marketing on user-generated content, on developing customer stories, on developing customer advocacy instead of tediously filling people's inboxes with product data sheets and other crap like that that no one pays any attention to, they're filling their email box. I have a number of subscriptions that I, up until now I've been quite willing to subscribe to. But because I responded to two or three things, I'm now getting three or four examples of the same email clogging up my inbox every single day. Now, that's crazy. So if we were to spend more of our, our budget on effective marketing instead of efficient marketing, and we were able to help the, our SDRs and AEs fill their pipeline, overfill their pipeline with quality, qualified prospects. They wouldn't have to chase the discount at the end of the month to try and get deals because you prospect for choice. Now, this is where so many organizations go wrong because they're constantly denuding their pipeline from the next quarter and or the next month. And as a result, they're always playing this game of catch up. Stop it. Give these guys a chance to develop and grow. You mentioned earlier on that you know, the, the way companies try to entice and bribe you away is offering you career development and career growth and a career path and new experiences and all this kind of stuff. How often does that actually come true? I have had it happen in roles and I've had it not happen in roles. So the biggest problem, I think, is the actual carrot of it all. So I was in a role where we're essentially going to launch a new product that was more enterprisey product. And they were like, you know, you're a fantastic rep. We want you for this role, but we need you to just kind of be team leader and team performer. And it got to the point where my manager was saying, hey, can you help me manage the team and listen to other people's call recordings and coach them and do all of this and that? And I was like, I'm applying for an enterprise sales role. I'm not applying to to coach my peers or do something like that. You know, I'm happy to do that if they want it from me because I like them and because that is something that's great. But, you know, I've got a quota I need to hit. 
And I need to hit this quota and exceed this quota to move into this role. And I need to work on, you know, professional development and skills for this role. I don't need to worry about coaching and nurturing my peers when I'm trying to move into an enterprise role. It didn't really line up and make sense. And I think that was the point. You don't don't want me to get this role. You want me to do some of your work. So this is where you start managing by abdication. It's where you've conscripting people into management activity rather than having volunteers. At any point in your recruitment process or in the um, first six to 12 months of that role, did you actually tell your manager you wanted to move into management? No, I was actually asked to move into him. They were like, you know, we'd love to prep you for management. We think that'd be great. And I was you know, right now I'm, I'm really focused on, on me, you know, I'm focused on trying to figure out who I am and be my best self. I don't think I need the burden of eight people who are trying to go through that journey when, you know, the best thing for me right now, I think would be moving into an individual contributor role and developing more in that career. That's not to say I would never want to be a manager, but the timing wasn't right. And I had explicitly said that multiple times. Right. So again, listen, pay attention to what your reps are telling you. If they want to move into management, by all means, put them on that runway. Give them that exposure because it's really important that they learn how to do that before you actually give them the management title uh, instead of the usual route to management, which is, congratulations, Emily, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're now the manager. And all of a sudden, you have no idea what the hell you're doing. So you do what was done to you and you do what you think is needed, but you've been a top producer. So by nature, you're quite selfish in your production capability. And that's what you teach other people to do. But you don't know how to do it because you've never learned how to coach or to train or to mentor. You don't know how to hold other people to account. So probably what you do is you beat your hands on the table and say, you have to work harder. You've got to do more calls. And instead of actually producing a great manager, you lose a good producer and you gain an average to terrible manager. Have you experienced that in your time where someone who was a top producer was promoted into management without that runway and without uh, learning how to do the job? And as a result, you ended up with a crap manager who killed the morale. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my most recent job search, the most important thing I was looking for was a manager that had experience because I've had so many people, I would say in four out of five of those roles, it was just someone got tapped. They they were in the right seat at the right time and they became a manager. There was no executive coaching. There's not that 120 day ramp for the manager. They're a manager day one and they're mainly learning on the job how to do it. And it's important for managers to keep on top of, you know, KPIs, metric, whatever. But I think building that trust is something that's really important. One thing I hear at startups regularly is trust us, we're a family, we're this and that. And it's great to say that. It's great to have that as part of your culture. But until like I really spent many hours with you and like developed a connection with you and feel like I want my manager to feel like my friend and someone that I can trust and someone I can work with. Until I have that connection, like you're not going to really get anything. Let me make a point here. Philip Larkin wrote a wonderful poem called This Be The Verse. 
They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and they add some extra just for you. That's what a family is. Virtually every one of us is a sick puppy. We are largely dysfunctional. I mean, how many of you have not got that crazy parent or crazy uncle or crazy brother or sister or crazy spouse? How often people say that they're families? I wouldn't use that as um, you know, a model for building any business. Build a business because it exists for the right reason. And don't uh, try and soft pedal this drivel about family. You're in business for a reason. You need to have a purpose. If you don't have a purpose, then chances are you're going to be eaten alive by companies that do. Make sure that your salespeople and all the people in your company understand what that purpose is and buy into it. Tell me this. If you look at the companies that you've worked in or you've interviewed for, where they really didn't have a purpose and it was just simply to make money, how did those companies make you feel as you were going through the recruitment process or the onboarding process about how much they valued you or what mattered to you? I don't know if I have a great answer for that question. I think your silence says quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you never really know in the, the recruiting. I think the, the time I've really felt like the most empowered and stuff is like when, um, you know, instead of talking about promotions and stuff, you know, I've had companies offer me consulting where I can like talk to someone about how to improve my craft or offer me specific trainings or offer me the freedom to like select my own training. So I think those are really companies where you can see they really like value and invest in you. But I think those are kind of few and far between. So tell me what your ideal manager looks like, sounds like, feels like. For my ideal manager, one thing that's most important is really building building a bond with them. So they need to invest time to not just know Emily can make X amount of calls. Emily's great at prospecting. Maybe know like, what's my boyfriend's name? What do I like to do? Really build that kind of training and communication. I think my manager needs to be organized. Uh, there's nothing worse than when a manager asks you like, hey, how's this deal going? It's like, oh, I spent 20 minutes writing up a Salesforce blog about it. So like, maybe if you want to read that, that's good. Having conversations that are like really productive, really intelligent. I think coaching is really important. I don't want my one-on-one to just be a pipeline review. Like if there's a pipeline review, we'll have a pipeline review, but it should be like, hey, this is something you could work on. This is a resource that could potentially help you. These are, this is also my general feedback on how I can make you better. And yeah, I think being productive, using data to just kind of drive where I'm going, like understand, hey, you know, if you, if you do this, you can actually produce this based on results. You can make X amount of money rather than just saying, you know, if you do really well, you'll eventually be in this position. Um, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear like a concrete roadmap to what do I need to do to breach X amount of money or um, a promotion or anything internally. So it strikes me that what you're saying is they need to listen. They need to pay <laughs> attention to what you want and what you're trying to achieve. 
They need to understand you as a human being, what your drivers and what your motivations are, and work with you to co-develop a career path and a plan. They need to spend time training you, coaching you, helping you to improve. And they also need to understand you as a human being in order to be able to understand what drives you, what motivates you, because motivation is an ex, uh, an internal force. You cannot motivate anybody to do anything. You can bribe them, beat them with a carrot, uh, bully them, brutalize them, become a dictator, but you cannot motivate. Motivation is internal. I mean, you come to work for your reasons, not your boss's reasons, fair? Yeah, absolutely. And you're in sales for your reasons, not the company's reasons. Of course. Absolutely. So unless you understand that, what you're going to do is you're going to miss out on a lot of bright young things who are out there. They're driven, they're motivated. One of the things that really pisses me off about my generation is, and we used to get this from my my parents' generation, we were fickle and uh, we were flighty and we weren't effective or serious and we were selfish and entitled. And that's a crock of shit, okay? What I hear is that kind of accusation being leveled against millennials and Gen Zs. They are bright, they're driven, they're articulate. And if you understand them and if you bother to find out how they are motivated and you create the conditions in order to help them succeed, they will work like Trojans, okay? I mean, what's your work ethic like? I'd say I have a really strong work ethic in my eyes. I'm hopefully, you know, surrounded by people, people I want to work hard for and like to, but not necessarily because they're a part of the company, but, you know, it's because they've invested in me. It's because we have great conversations. It's because, you know, I'm a part of building the company and the process. I don't want to say like, yeah, it's, it's all about me. Like I want to make money and stuff. It's all about like how the people around me make me feel. So when they make me feel important when they make me feel listened to and stuff that makes me want to work harder one thing that people say you're not in it for the company I think if the company is a part of my life I'm going to be in it for the company but you know if I'm just going through the motions of course like the priority is going to be a top to me so I think there there's a good way to blend how that motivation by like making people feel listened to making them feel heard giving recognition and not just saying like, hey, you did a great job. Hey, this has been a huge needle mover and I'm going to reward you with X, Y, and Z. Because I know that, you know, if I close a great deal or something that's like moving the company forward, like they're obviously making money. So it's not, I'm being selfish. It's, I want more recognition. So the rewards need to be fair and equitable and they need to be relevant and tailored to you. Is it, is it always cash that you want? Or is it experiences? Or is it training and development? What are the kind of things that actually get you excited in terms of reward and recognition? Money was really important to me when when I was younger because when you had none. You know, when you had none. Yeah, exactly. Like I think that was a huge priority for me in the beginning. Like you know, the average one bedroom apartment in San Francisco is thirty two hundred dollars, and I was living with a bunch of roommates, so I could afford to go to work and stuff. And, you know, it would be like, you know, I might bike instead of like taking the bus, even if it's raining, because I couldn't afford to. So in the, the beginning, money was a huge driver for me. Now I'm starting to think of things as more important. Like I said, you know, I want to really maximize 
the value for the customer. Now that I have a larger deal cycle, I'm talking to customers for four, five, six months before they're making a decision. So I'll ultimately want what's best for them. You know, I think it's valuable when a company invests in coaching, not just watch these 10 YouTube videos that we paid like $150 for and like write up a report. That's not valuable for me. I can do that on my own time. I could go listen to a podcast or listen to this podcast to get that. But I I want like maybe like someone working one-on-one with me, whether it's a manager, an executive coach, something like that to drive performance. I think also like getting called into higher level conversations is valuable, makes you feel like you're driving your career forward. Any of those experiences that can help ultimately improve you as a person, I think are definitely more valuable now once I'm like later in my career. But I I can't say if I was 22 and they were like, do you want a raise or an executive coach? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This has been really very insightful. Tell me, what kind of things are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay attention to? Sales, life management, development, psychology, not fast, just stuff that's really interesting and helps you progress, either as a human being or in your career. I've been watching a lot of like masterclasses recently. I think uh, (laughs) in sales, I watched the one with Chris Boss, like the CIA agent. And I think, you know, the ability to really tell stories around teaching is incredibly valuable. Hearing how hostage negotiation relates to sales is like very empowering, very interesting. Also, I think one thing that's valuable for me is just reading great storytellers and just learning how to articulate in that way. So for fun, I like to read. I'm a big fan of Ben Mesrit. You know, he's written books like Bringing Down the House, Bitcoin Billionaires. He just writes about things that are kind of top of mind in the public center, like, you know, Facebook or Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, anything like that, puts them in fun ways with like a lot of research and a lot of stories. So I think just like learning in like really interesting and thoughtful ways is really top of mind for me. But trying to get good balance of, you know, having fun and then also taking advantage of all the the available resources around me, but, you know, without trying to get burnt out on just like only digesting sales stuff. Okay, a couple of things. I, I interviewed Chris Vervos's boss, Gary Nesler, who is oh, um, head of the FBI's emergency response team. And uh, so I'll send you the link to that. There is a wonderful book on storytelling called Squirrel Inc. INC. And it's a parable all about a squirrel nut collecting company and the different types of story that you can use within an enterprise. And that's by Steve Denning. And that's really a great read. And the other one that I suggest is Asking Questions by Antonio Garrido, G-A-R-R-I-D-O. I'll send you a copy of that. I think you'll enjoy that. In fact, there's this one, which is out of print, but a genuinely fabulous book called How to Run Your Own Life by Ute Meininger, J-U-T. M-E-I-N-I-N-G-E-R. It'll probably cost you about $100 to $150 secondhand, tattered old, battered copy. But it's worth every penny because it's all about transactional analysis 
which is the most effective model that I've come across in psychology of understanding human beings. And that's all sales is. It's understanding human beings. I'm also running a podcast around table with three guys. So uh, Amy Brown, Rob Turley, and Martin Lucas on why humans don't understand humans. So I'll let you know about that because I think that you'll really, really find that interesting. Um, tell me this, what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I would say like the, the biggest thing I'm wrestling with right now is burnout, but not in the sense of like, you know, quotas and stuff, but just like, you know, burnout from like COVID and working from home and stuff. I think it, it, it's a challenge. Obviously, as you can see here, I'm like working in my bedroom. So I, I feel like I don't have like a great escape from the office. So I always feel like, you know, at night, like I'm, I'm at work or there's all that different expectation. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to businesses starting to think creatively about how people that are like me and live in a one bedroom apartment are really thinking about working remote long-term for the next couple of years and how that could potentially be addressed or fixed. There's companies like Google that just give you like a thousand dollars and they're like, that's great. But like, you know, like all of my expenses keep living here and stuff. I think there, there needs to be people thinking creatively about how work, like working from home is great if you have a home office and if you have great setup for it, but you know, for other people that might be a little bit more social like me, uh, or just might have like space constraints like me, you know, how like maybe this is making them go. Um, a couple of things. There, there are platforms like LearnBright that create a 3D environment. It's a learning management system, but you've got coffee rooms, breakout rooms, lecture theaters, all that kind of stuff. And I think what's going to happen over the next couple of years is those kind of technologies merging with collaboration tools. So keep an eye out for that. Karen Mangier, who works at Salesforce, has literally this month, about a week ago, released a great book called Working From Home. I saw the pre-publishing copy of it. Very, very useful book. Um, and the other thing that I've seen a lot of uh, organizations do is create social lunches or coffee time or drinks times where they're doing this over video platforms like Zoom or 8x8 and creating at least some form of social interaction. But it, it is incredibly isolating. I'm fortunate because I live with the five, six women in my life. Uh, so three daughters, <laughs> a wife, a cat and a dog, all of which are female. And um, so I, I don't really have a chance to get lonely. But I, I imagine it must be really, really tough for many people, particularly extroverts. So again, you know, one of my clients uh, set up a pub quiz. So every Friday afternoon, that was the way to just wind down with a glass of beer or some wine. So uh, again, you know, these are things that might help. Wow. Emily, how can people get hold of you? You can reach me on LinkedIn, uh, just linkedin.com slash Emily H. Lamb, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, definitely open open to talking, communicating. Uh, a part of a couple of different Slack groups, most notably like Revenue Collective uh, and Rev Genius. So happy to DM, happy to talk about any problems you have with your manager, any frustrations you have with training, 
or you know if you just want to complain like I don't work at your company uh I can <laughs> I, I'm here for you like I, I know it's a hard time but I think you know people need good outlets to really be heard and move forward Emily Lamb thank you so much I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation I really appreciate it yeah I mean as well thank you I look forward to hearing more about all of your new interviews thank you Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, and share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get hold of me, then you can email me at marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.